Bonjour, bonsoir, dear friends. Welcome to JCB Live. In this beautiful day in the heart of Napa Valley, we have a true, iconic, phenomenal, and artistic man today. He graduated sum cum laude out of Yale. He's a brain. He's an intellect. On top of it, he speaks French better than I do. He actually teaches me some grammar once in a while. He founded an incredible winery with his beautiful wife, as you can see, Arietta. He'll tell us all about it. And he's been helping America and Napa Valley to raise a lot of money over the years because he is the very iconic Fritz Hatton that you've seen at the Napa Valley Wine Auction and all around the United States and beyond. He's flamboyant, he's sexy, he wears the bow tie like Churchill, and he's full of culture. Are we ready? The cabaret for him. <laughs> Woohoo! Fritz, bonjour. Bonjour, Jean-Charles. Comment ça va, Fritz? Très bien. Spécialement avec euh, toi, Jean-Charles. Moi aussi. Je, je, je peux te tutoyer. Oh, mais bien sûr, cher ami. Et on se tutoie depuis 20 ans maintenant. 20 ans, c'est vraiment? Hey. 20 ans. 20 ans, we've well, known each other. That's right. Where did it we were start? both young and almost at school. I was trying to get into Yale. One got accepted, one didn't. <laughs> Jean-Charles, you've done better than us all. Ooh la la, I barely graduated of high school. <laughs> you graduated summa cum laude in Napa. That's right. <laughs> so how does it feel to be a double graduate of Yale? Well, I have to take a sip before I answer mm. that. Mm. And look at each other in the eye. Ladies and gentlemen, you oh, want to look at those beautiful blue that eyes. That is very good. <laughs> very those blue eyes convince the world to raise their hands. That's the way to start the morning. <laughs> Actually, it is morning. Or is it six o'clock at night? It's six o'clock. Six o'clock at night. I know night. it's Even still better. very bright in Napa Valley, isn't it? Absolutely. That is very refreshing, Jean Charlotte. Thank you so much for bringing a little touch of French class and. Joie de vivre. Well, you have the joie de vivre. So, how do we become Fritz Hatton? Oh, my word. Uh, I know it's a big question, dear friends, but there's not more of a colorful, animated, phenomenal personality on stage than Fritz. So, tell us, how do we become this man? Well, there's no planning in it. I'll tell you that. It's merely an evolution. <laughs> Was it? Yeah, you get fired up by something and you just follow it. I mean, oh, you yeah, have passion. an amazing career at Christie's. And tell us about this history that led to become the most amazing auctioneer in the heart of America for wine. Well, I never thought I'd be an auctioneer. You know, in the United States, the idea of a, the image of an auctioneer is someone who sort of sells hogs and real estate and broken down machinery and whatnot. And well, you exist only sell so they, you know, completely shutting out those who don't know what's going on. So the pros can get in there and make their... That <laughs> was keep the energy going. But, How do you practice I, this? What I don't do, but if anyone said, do you want to grow up to be an auctioneer? Yeah. They, I would have thought they were crazy or certainly rather sort of, you know, that was kind of a put down. For sure. In a way. Uh, but the English style brought to this country by Sotheby's and Christie's is much different. It's uh, 
Oh, well, now we have this painting, and let's open it $20,000. $20,000. $22,000 the gentleman in the black suit. $24,000 to the lady in the lovely pink hat. At $26,000. $28,000 now. So it's a totally different style. But, I mean, long before then, I mean, I was grew up interested in music. Um, not uh, the fine arts per se, although my father was... Uh, pretty cultivated guy and not only was a, he was a francophile uh and he was a an amateur musician and he loved art also so we had that uh around uh the house and uh, <clears throat> my mother was always very ambitious for uh, for us to do something with it and always i started playing the piano at age seven wow so you've been a musician all your life yes more or less my grandmother, uh, who was a widower, adopted me as her date for the local concert series in Grand Rapids. And starting at age four, she would come and get me and take me to the symphony. Wow. And Fantastic. I got interested in, in classical music that way. Uh, and then in, uh, I remember when I was seven, my, uh, what do you call a, a girlfriend in first grade or, you know, a friend in interest. Well, you started so, to kiss very early. Well, no, no, well, <laughs> I was seven. She started to she started to have piano lessons, and I said, "Well, I would like lessons too." So um, it was I was self motivated enough uh, to keep going with piano. I didn't have to be pushed mm -hmm. to play the piano. And you had a natural ability for sure. Well, I don't know. I mean, natural ability. I had uh, uh, certainly a father who was really interested in music and would play the Metropolitan Opera full blast on Saturday wow. afternoons. We would go <laughs> running out of the house. Oh, my God. The screaming Birgit Nielsen. Or, or but you loved it. But, well, I really got into opera when I was in college. Actually, mm. when I got away from my father. And, of course, you know, isn't that funny how you get interested in things that you don't like when you're away from your parents that your parents For love. sure. So that's where my love for opera developed. But I was uh, uh, a young piano player, and I started to play the French horn also. Mm. We were sent off to music camp. Wow. And uh, so it was a marvelous thing. They had something called music exploration. Yeah. So at age nine, I was shown how to play all the instruments in the orchestra. And you're sort of rated on your aptitude. And they said, you know, you're best at French horn and oboe. <laughs> so, <laughs> oboe? My father had been an oboist. So maybe that was part of uh, that. But I decided on uh, the French horn. So actually, French horn became my primary interest uh, instrument of interest uh, until the end of high school. And mm. piano sort of took a uh, somewhat of a back seat, but I continued to study. And <clears throat> I could you was... make a few sound for us of French horn? <laughs> that would be quite exciting to hear, don't you all think? Well, you need a mouthpiece. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bum. So, wow. Listen to that. He does not even need the instrument. The instrument is right here. <laughs> we got to hear more, I'm that, sure. That's the opening of the Strauss First Horn Concerto, which I remember playing in a state competition. And I got to tell you <laughs> that Strauss that you've mentioned is often a major French celebration, as you know, the one we play. You know, whether it's 14th of July, whether it's uh, other big community celebration in France, that's the one we play. Wait, so Strauss, Richard Strauss or Johann Strauss? Johann. Oh, well. Uh -huh. that's, sort of, <laughs> that's the Blue Danube and all those sort of 
I love the idea that the French want to do something Viennese. Well, we love it. The Viennese Still recalling Marie Antoinette, who was from Vienna. That's it. (laughs) I love that. And we still have that nostalgia of her. Mm. Mm. But so then, nine, ten years old, so you play a lot of music, and then you go to music school in a way. Well, I never, I went to music camp in the summers. I was uh, shipped off to, and I wanted to, uh, to boarding school when Mm -hmm. I was 14 on the East Coast. I had a marvelous piano teacher there, Klaus Goetz, an old mm. German fellow. He did look like a portrait of Brahms, really, at the yeah. piano. He said, oh, sick. And, uh, but there's the scales now, and he said, there's the arpeggios and whatnot. And, and then he said, okay, you are now, you need to learn the Beethoven Second Piano Concerto because I'm going to make you play it with an orchestra. Wow. So that was, it was good to have him pushing me. When someone uh, have you play Beethoven, you are very, very good at that stage. Well, I don't know. I mean, I used to, I used to play the Beethoven sonatas. I had yes. the, the both volumes uh, at home, and <clears throat> my. <laughs> this is a very sore point between me and my siblings. My parents would allow me to go practice the piano while my siblings had to do the dishes. Ooh. So they still, we know the favorite boy. They, they still the remind me. That's right. <laughs> I'm so sure. I, yes, I was. Uh, so you play really granted. professional. I've never, I've done a few quasi-professional things, but when I was uh, in college, I thought, I went with the intention of being a music major. But when I arrived, I realized where I went, which was Yale, I didn't really kind of check things out in advance. So I showed up and found out that you could not get credit as as in performance. Really? So it was only going to be music theory or music history. And music history was so dry. I like to actually do it. Yeah. Rather than study dusty medieval scores, which was in vogue back then. So I thought, hmm, darn. Well, uh, okay, and I didn't have someone pushing me, so I got involved in amateur theatrical productions, some mm-hmm. musicals, and we did some really interesting things. We did the first non-professional production of Sondheim's Little Night Music, and that was the fall of 74. It premiered actually in London and come to New York. And uh, one of the cast members was Steve, uh, and a classmate of mine was Steve Sondheim's goddaughter. Mm-hmm. So she was able to get the score yeah. in manuscript form. So wow. we were playing, it was a, imprinted. Big deal. And that was, and it's a really complicated show. It's marvelous. And that was a wonderful project. And then I was uh, played the piano for a Sondheim review uh, before Side by Side by Sondheim even premiered. So that was uh, four cabaret artists was cabaret and yeah. an hour and a quarter of hence cabaret uh, wines for you exactly here's to the cabaret life well here's <laughs> to the cabaret uh, we should reopen a cabaret in Napa Valley don't you think it would be great absolutely would you perform uh, on well, stage after a glass or two of this yes <laughs> I might and would it be fun yeah. dear friends to have a cabaret in Napa or even in San Francisco for that matter but something of that caliber well the opera house is sitting there Jean-Charles maybe that's something to uh, mm-hmm. well they tried that it's a bit of a large in the ground floor yes of the opera house so we that's something we do with cabaret in Napa there are a lot of you know there really is a great musical culture in Napa yes. some of it's rather a little bit uh, maybe out of sight some is uh, inside it's a small valley for so sure. It's a big name, but a small valley. So there's not a lot of people to support um, larger performances. And but San Francisco being so close by, I think it would be great to to establish 
the cabaret feel the real way from the 20s, the 30s, the 40s. Oh, yeah. With all the talent of music and dancing and performance and wine and food. Well, and I mean, that. we have people like Vanessa uh, Conlon here who could sing yes. La Vina Rose. And if we could convince her to go well, back and sing. Certainly we can. So, but And if someone can, you can. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'll drink I, to that, Vanessa. I hope she, you watch I it. did get her to sing at our house. For a little while when she uh, so first you were came better out. than me she because was... on JCB Live she just did oh that was nice but that was well it. you have to actually sit down or play the piano accompaniment that's it child. and then maybe know, next time we do a trio with her wouldn't it be nice that would be fantastic the end of so, Rose and Cavalier the three of us would be she can amazing. handle a soprano but can you do the alto well <laughs> with you can do Baradox that's it that's about the only thing yeah, I can. a great comic part. So now we'll come back to the history of Christie's and how you became an auctioneer. But something very cool is how, and explain all of us how you started Arietta and how this amazing, fabulous label got designed and all that. And I know we're going forward and then we'll go backwards into the auction world and your life, but we got to get some wine going because well, I, yeah, I, we cannot I, just I, do bubbles. I couldn't friends. agree more. Here we go. Listen to the sound, Crystal. What does it make? Le verre extravagant. Ooh la la. Ooh. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Jean Charles Boisset <laughs> with Fritz Hatton. <laughs> qui va chanter pour vous? <laughs> Et qui va jouer le piano pour vous? Oui, peut-être. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Mm. I got to tell you. So this how is did it happen? Standing. This. Dear friends, not only you can find it on Arietta website, obviously, Fritz and his beautiful wife website, but as well at the Oakville Grocery. This happens to be one of my top favorite, top five of what is produced in the United States as a white wine. Unbelievable, Fritz. Well, thank you, John Charles. Ooh, and I mean, hopefully he'll get me a few bottles, you know, just to make sure <laughs> I can well, say that again. <laughs> well, you know who we make this wine for? No. Us. Oh, here we go. We make it for us. This is what Karen and I like. Hey, who else? This is a style of life. And our goal is simply mm. to find enough other people who like what we like to sell mm. the rest of the wine. And but I know you've succeeded in that. Well, if, if we make 500 cases of this, I promise you we drink 10% of it in the house. Well, I'm going to drink 2% of it soon. Uh, in my house. <laughs> I find this exceptional, frankly. Well, thank you. Um, so what is it? It's a white Bordeaux-style blend. I mean, what we make are Bordeaux-style blends. And we love Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. But we kind of stick to our knitting. What are the grapes that grow best close to us? here in Napa, and our fantastic winemaker, Andy Erickson, for sure. Where he made Pinot for a little while, but if I said, it's so far to drive out to the Sonoma Coast. And he to, bikes to anyhow, it takes too long yeah, for him to that's bike right. over there, Andy. And he doesn't have a helicopter like Jason <laughs> Palmeyer did. <laughs> that's right. So, Or Heidi Barrett. Correct. So, uh, but anyway, so we make uh, border style blends, and as a white wine, this is wow. Sauvignon Blanc mostly, yeah. with some Semillon. But we do a lot of uh, things uh, uh, to this wine to make it what we want, which is a wine that has a really bright start, yep. but then a rather grand finish. So how do we keep it bright? And, and, and as I mentioned, my father was a Francophile, and I spent my first 20 years drinking mostly French wine and For European sure. wine because I was living on the East Coast. 
Midwest, East Coast. I didn't show up in Napa to, you know, consistently till 1992, by which time I'd already been drinking. Well, I shouldn't reveal these numbers, but for some time. Even <laughs> later. To know Fritz better, not just the auctioneers, but as well. You know the stories behind Fritz beginning in the wine world. Well, uh, let, uh, we could uh, go all the way back, or you want to start midstream? Well, okay. midstream is great, too. Well, let's go to midstream, and then yeah. we can go, go back. But So what happened was I took a sabbatical from Christie's, mm-hmm. the auction house, and we'll talk about how I got there. That's a story yeah. unto itself, uh, to go back and study piano, which I really hmm. wanted to do. I still didn't. I own nothing. I was still a bachelor and no real estate. I didn't even have a car yet. I'd been living in New York, London, and then Tokyo wow. for a couple of years and said, you know what? I dream. I'm dying to just go back and play the piano for a year. So I picked up, moved to San Francisco because I'd been doing wine events here in wine country, mostly Sonoma then, huh. since the mid-80s. And I thought, okay, San Francisco, it has the musical culture. It's close to wine country. Yeah. I already know a bunch of people <clears throat> through wine here. That's going to be the place. So I showed up and I got the former head of the conservatory to give me piano lessons, a piacere, sort of as the one I wanted, and started to put together informal piano recitals. Really? So, so it, you took a sabbatical of a year. Very well, cool. Well, it turned out a year wasn't enough. It turned into three and a half years. <laughs> Good for you. In the end, because there was so much that I wanted to do musically. So I do a, a program in my apartment, sort of two-thirds of a standard length recital. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd invite friends to come over and the acceptance rate was very high because as soon as I was done out came the bottles of wine and food and we carried on and <laughs> we partied wow. until you know the wee hours so I had no idea you took such a long sabbatical this is brilliant well in the in the end I after a year I just done one recital and then I had a little adventure I went trekking in Nepal and I raced across the Atlantic with my uncle in a sailboat very Columbus cool which was an interesting thing to do once, like climbing Mount Fuji. You say, they tell you you're a fool if you, uh, uh, you know, if you never do it and you do it more than once. That's right. But at least once in your life. No, it it was a tremendous experience, but I was just sort of getting going. So I then resigned from Christie's and kept going with this uh, musical life with some wine. I helped a friend export uh, California wine to Europe. So I had a fair amount of European travel and, over there, standing at the booth at the Frankfurt Wine Fair, and yes. you know, at the Vin Expo for several years. The usual begging moments of trying to promote wine. Absolutely. Huh? <laughs> well, California wine then. Seduce an importer or distributor. That's right. It was, and you were still in shorts. So well, burgundy. I was in shorts behind my booth in the Burgundy Center. <laughs> <laughs> you probably I was there. <laughs> we didn't meet then, but not long yeah. after. Uh, so, anyway, it went on for uh, three and a half. But finally, I was starting to run a little. Short on, uh, you know, dough. So I went back to work for Christie's. They asked me to come back and run the wine department. But in back here for the U.S. In the U.S., back to New York. But when I arrived in Napa and was asked to be one of the auctioneers for the Napa auction in 1992, the chairman, Paula Cornell, of that year said, oh, we better introduce Fritz to someone else who's crazed about classical music. And I think that was Get Kongsgaard. John Konsgaard, fantastic! You know the great winemaker who was uh, the the co-founder of Chamber Music in Napa Valley and had been he inviting was. artists to perform for his series and then come up to the house. And 
whatnot. So we were set up to meet at a dinner party. <clears throat> and it was like we were twins separated at birth. Yeah. We, I went at 11 o'clock, went over to their house. And I think we listened to seven versions of the end of Die Valkyrie. Wow. Live uh, recordings from Bayreuth from 1952 to 1958. Crazy stuff. <clears throat> so I got into the uh, pattern of coming up to the Cones cards with an armload of piano music. Yes. Uh, and we would you know, make a dinner and uh, get out bottles of wine and make music until we dropped. <clears throat> and then we'd get, I'd set up a pup tent out in the garden. <laughs> And so, you know, 10.30 a.m., the sun is shining down. I roused myself into the kitchen for coffee, you know, breakfast, Riesling, start making music. Wow. Then lunch. I had no idea. Then Chardonnay, more music. Mm -hmm. Then walking the dogs, you know, in the the vineyards, a little nap. Out comes the red wine, music, dinner. So his house on Atlas Peak. No, this was up on Spring Mountain. Spring Mountain at the time. So we had these marvelous uh, musical Bacchanals. Uh, wow. With often with great musicians. And if there was a professional pianist there, John would say, okay, Fritz, you go to the piano and then after a couple glasses of wine, suggest that maybe a you know a star singer who happened to be there, like Susan Graham or Barbara Bonney, what what are you saying? Or they would spontaneously say, Oh, I'll sing something. And off we would go. <laughs> All very private. What an amazing but life. It was a magical, magical time. And it still continues with John. And uh, I and uh, we, the, the Hattons and Combs guys, have remained very, very close friends. But what happened towards the end of the sabbatical is uh, I was going back to New York. And John, I think, wanting to uh, give me a reason to, to, come, back keep, to Napa. Get, come back to Napa. Called and said, uh, Meister. He called me Meister. I was this court pianist. Meister, how'd you like to make a little red wine together? And I said, uh, really? I, I literally, I was uh, at my apartment on Russian Hill. It was 9.30 uh, of an evening, and I was playing the piano. How do you want to make a little red wine together? And he said, well, I said, really? I said, you got to let me know right away because I have a chance to snitch some grapes at 6 in the morning. I said, Really? We're going to snitch some grapes. We're going to start a wine partnership by stealing some grapes <laughs> or something like that. He said, no, 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 no. It's a time-honored uh, time honored tradition. We'll just get there before the contract these pickers do and take a barrel's worth of grapes out of there and they'll never know. <laughs> really? Music, of course. Well, this was before we even had a name for what was going on. This was just a test barrel. Uh, so I said, well, I mean, are we going to pay for these grapes? Of course, yes, we'll pay for the grapes. How much? $200 for the grapes, $600 for the barrel. So what was I going to say? No, that's of right. course, my great buddy, John Collins, let's make a barrel of wine together. <laughs> so I went back to Christie's and forgot about it. And a couple months later, phone rings, Meister, guess what? Next year, we can get a good part of that block and make about 300 cases of wine. But that's more than we could drink. Do you think we could sell it? I could sell it. <laughs> yeah, I think I could probably sell 300 cases, you know, processing thousands of cases at auction here at Christie's in New York. Uh, so, okay, and I hang up the phone. I think I kind of forget about it again. The phone rings, you know, a couple months later or whenever. Meister. And I, <laughs> in the following vintage, we can get the entire block. And we can, you know, maybe get some Merlot to blend with. This was, this was a block of Cabernet Franc in Lee Hudson's ranch. And uh, he said, but that's going to be about 650 cases. And well, are you still in? And now I started to think, okay, well, now we're getting up into five figures. That's right? becoming a real business. And uh, right. So 
And it, bang, you know, a light went off. And I said, God, this could be the economic reason for me to hightail it back to the West Coast. After, you know, a stint working for Christie's and really getting myself into the wine business full time. Wow. Because prior to then, wine had always been part of what I did. And maybe even a small part, but not 100%. And you were auctioning all the things. Well, during the 80s, during my first round, I was director of operations. I came in through the wine department, but then was elevated quickly because I had a master's in management. For sure. Uh, So they said, come on, get over here. We'll give you a real job. And so there I was. You know, so you manage which categories as an example? Well, I managed the, I was kind of the back of the house guy. I managed wow. administration. But when I came on board, they said uh, at some point, uh, one of my minders on the executive committee said, we'd like, we think you should train up as an auctioneer. I said, really? As an auctioneer? Well, uh, okay. You know, I'd taken on this job yeah. as office manager and then director of operations. Yes. So I'm, just, I'm trying these new things. And well, okay, well, I'll try. You're a great I'll, performer. Anyhow, so, behind the piano. Well, so why not? I had no idea what auctioneering was so opaque and kind of strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went down the hall. We had an in-house training course at Christie's for a couple months. Every week we do mock auctions. And we'd <laughs> learn sort of, the you know, the rules and techniques and whatnot. And then... You, if you made it that far, you'd be selected to do a trial auction. And so you're thrown up for 30 lots of the cheapest stuff. You know, the junk that, that sure. is coming through estates and whatnot. Because you can't do much damage if you follow things up. So I remember doing my first 30 lots of cheap, you know, half-broken mirror, you know, <laughs> chair with three legs. <laughs> yeah. I doubt that, but... <laughs> yeah, you're a but you sculpture without an arm. And he did well? So I survived. Oh, I was terrified. I think it's, you know, it must be like going on the stage of Carnegie Hall for the first time. Yeah. Which I never made it, so... Anyway. Well, it's still time. Well, you never know. But uh, I was terrified. But if you survive those 30 lots, then you go back and do 100 lots. In the next auction, if you survive that, then you do a whole auction and session, a half day session of the less expensive things. And then you gradually worked up to the more expensive items. Mm-hmm. And I never made it to the top, uh, the most expensive works of art, uh, the evening sales and whatnot. But I, I was the side room auctioneer for the evening sales. So I was there when multi-million dollars work, uh, works of art were, were, were sold. And in fact, I was a side room auctioneer when we sold... Uh, Van Gogh's Dr. Gachet in 1990 for $82 million. So, uh, which was the beginning of then the escalation. So, I'm sitting there with a side room next to the main room saying, Please, I hope no one bids here. And you know, $70 million. Oh, God, I want to follow that. And and what's your view today, not to interrupt this amazing chronology, but of the auction world? Because it's taken a new dimension, like there's no tomorrow. Well, the wine auction world, which is what I know. Better now, I've been out of the art auction world really for 25 or 30 years. I follow it a little bit because a few of my colleagues are still there. Of course, yeah. <laughs> you know, gray-haired, still running a few departments and whatnot. And it's fascinating. To, but it's fascinating to watch it move online, pushed. You know, it was it a lot of marketing online and then really pushed yes. by the pandemic to auctioneering online and setting up um, sales that, in fact... I know Christie set up a sale where it literally followed the sun around the world. It started in New York and then Hong Kong and then yeah. London on, on camera. And of course, the wine auctions have moved 
to on camera for Zaki's, where I'm still the, the principal auctioneer and doing some of the auctions. Yes. Not we go into a studio like this. So we'd be here, you know, you'd be sitting at the uh, computer making, entering the, you know, checking things. Which I love. And I'm standing in front of the camera and say, okay, lot 101, we have a case of uh, whatever it is. Uh, Our case, case, well, I don't know about that, but let's say a case of uh, Latour, uh, 2000, and uh, off we go at $12,000, 13000 14000 I've got a screen here. And I may have, there may be a couple of bidding parties, yeah. which are on screens here. So I'm watching the bids that have been previously received on screen and bidders bidding live on screen. So bids are appearing on screen, plus bids are appearing at the bidding parties yes. over here. So it's kind of a three or four ring circus all being managed in this little room with no, with no one else. And of course, you know. So you got to watch what's going on. Well, that's in right. In a very thorough way then. But, three or four different right. ways of coming in. But also, you know, make it not seem totally stale. A little yeah. bit of, okay, oh, I see you on the West Coast are going after you. Injecting a little bit of yeah. that as well. And the um, charity auctions, also the ones that have kept going, <clears throat> I have been virtual online and I've done a couple of those. In fact, the Winapalooza auction here yes. for Jameson Animal Rescue Ranch, uh, we did last uh, July and it was a lot of fun. It was scripted by some tv scripted it so we literally acted out these little uh vignettes as a which, prologue which we're very excited about. And, and then came on and vanessa and i did it we were just kind of like oh you did it the together. morning show we do it together and we um see it's sitting at just like this yeah and <clears throat> taking bids on screen uh, from a live audience, and we had hundreds of people watching. Well, explain what it is, because we're going to be part of it this year, as you know, Vanessa and Waldus, which we've been, you know, indirectly supporters of. I think it's a great cause. Well, it's a fantastic thing. It's uh, obviously an animal rescue uh, um, organization, and it rescues a wide range uh, of animals, uh, dogs, cats, uh, pigs, she, Giraffe, if you have one. Alpacas. <laughs> birds. Llama sometimes. Yeah, a loose elephant. There it goes. <gasps> oh, look at the leopard. Yeah. Oh, no, that's a no, cheap no, no, no. Okay. The, the animals you have around here are too late to rescue. <laughs> <laughs> but they may wake up. Right. But it's a very successful and fun auction. Monica and David Stevens yes. uh, started it, of course. They really run it. And they're so passionate about animals and that passion is communicated mm -hmm. to the supporters and they raise a million and a half dollars. Which is amazing. But then, so you started your own auction company after all that. No, basically. I, well, I never started a, really a company. I have a little LLC, which is my, you know, yeah. uh, uh, on-demand auctioneering. Which you uh, do all around gig. the United States and beyond. Well, mostly the United States. Yeah. <clears throat> Very little um, offshore. But uh, I still do, before the pandemic, I was doing about 20 auctions. I used wow. to do about 30 auctions. She's a lot. Charity auctions. Well, in Two addition to Arietta and commercial auctioneering. That's right. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's a lot. So I think I'll be a little choosier, I think, going forward because Arietta is doing so great now. And it's just Karen and me running That's Arietta. Three, keep it obviously very lean. It's a, This is not a vanity project. It's a heck of a lot of fun. For sure. But, you know, it's got to pencil out. 
And it does. And it does. Well, it's, tell it's us, great. you know, your your idea of this wine. What were you going after? Because well, <clears throat> I will tell you what I think afterwards. As far as where it is in Bordeaux, okay. as good or better. <laughs> Jean Charles. Um, well, the idea with uh, just backing up to the John Cole's garden started. John yeah. wanted to make a wine featuring his favorite block when he was at Newton, which is this tiny block of Cabernet Franc on Lee Hudson's ranch. Yeah. And that then we now call it H block. That's the name okay. of this, which is what we regard as the flagship wine. So Cabernet Franc mostly with some Merlot, similar blend to Cheval Blanc. So an unusual reverse mm -hmm. right bank That's right. style of wine. And we stayed out of the Cabernet game for the first seven years. It was mm -hmm. all right bank wine. But then when we separated the Cones Garden Arietta brands, we said, well, we need a white wine, but we're making Bordeaux style blends. Let's not make Chardonnay. Let's make a Bordeaux style white wine. So it's so good. At that point, um, we brought on Andy Erickson to take over from John. John was yeah. moving up to Atlas Peak uh, and uh, building out the Cones Garden brand. And uh, so Andy got the hand. We said, well, literally after we had lunch and he agreed to come on board 10 days later, he came back and said, I found a fabulous source of Sauvignon Blanc grapes. Wow. And I said, great, where? And he said, well, uh, Sonoma Mountain. I said, wow, Sonoma Mountain. And I said, ooh, Sonoma Mountain. Next to the Zen Center. Well, we have all the stationery. Brings that peace. All the stationery that says Arietta, Napa Valley Red Wines. Do I throw thousands of sheets of stationery and envelopes? And, the, and then it took me about 10 minutes. And I said, oh, no, no, no. We're all right. We're still Napa Valley Red Wines. That's it. The white wine. <laughs> Actually, the Sonoma... Well, it's okay to have some. Anyway, so the uh, Sauvignon Blanc comes from wow. Sonoma Mountain, a hillside site, mm -hmm. sloping gently to the northeast up in the bench. Yeah. Uh, called the Farina Vineyard. It's not very well known by its name, but it had just been grafted back over Sauvignon Blanc. So we were the first ones in. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, John Colesgaard, who's still involved, said, gosh, we've got to call Larry Hyde. He's ripping out a semi on. He has a, his original block. And let's see if it's still there. He hasn't ripped it out. So we, it was literally sort of a stock the wrecking balls called yeah. to Larry Hyde. And he agreed to save this three quarter acre block for you. of Congress Springs Semillon for us. And it's 40 years old now. And it's kind of a life support. And Larry is so passionate. Yeah, about, for sure. And his son, Chris, is so passionate about these varietals that they've gone to UC Davis. So we can basically create a Selectio Massal. From that, and it took Davis five years to clean up the clone material mm. and uh, get it devirused, and so they're keeping this good. So anyway, which those is are the, the best is Massal selection. The, the those are the special sources you observe for the side. The market five years test, and eventually you can replicate it as such, which is really the way we in Burgundy, not where we make Sauvignon Blanc, do it. Right? And it's very exciting. What a wine. Well, all right. So how did we create the style of the yeah. wine? And of course, Karen and I it really like the acidity to be mm -hmm. very important to us. Yeah. I mean, Karen once said, if we ever made Chardonnay, we're making it in Chablis, which shows you the style. You we know, can we, help you there. Yeah. Okay. Well, it could happen. Jean Charles. <laughs> could be a project for nous. Strauss music or Chopin mm -hmm. or maybe Beethoven. Who would you want with Chablis as a music pairing? Chablis, that is that's an interesting question. Let me maybe Mendelssohn. Oh, Mendelssohn, lively, yeah, right, which is and the oceans 
and the oyster beds. The Hebrides, right? right? Exactly. Ooh. But That's just nice. back to the white keys, how do we create the style? So we had this kind of francophilic mm-hmm. uh, idea. But uh, so Andy and Annie and Karen and I spent an afternoon tasting a wide range of Sauvignon Blanc-based wines. And we all ran out. We came out, we had 45 bottles of Sauvignon Blanc-based wines so in New Zealand, all over the world. Uh, France, in various locations, White Bordeaux, Loire, of course, here, Sonoma, Napa, Santa Barbara. And so we went out, we pulled all the corks, and we just went up and down the rows to come up with wines that we liked. And I remember the, the two finalists for me in this whole group were a Domaine Chevalier Blanc. Yes. A one. Mm-hmm. So Semillon, uh, Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon. Yeah. And interestingly, a very clean uh, wine was, was Adam Tolmach's um, Ohio Vineyard Sauvignon yeah. Blanc. Mm-hmm. I don't think any oak, probably all the same, but just very, very clean. And I, yeah. um, my memory is that I would like to combine those two wines. And that's wow. what I want. So we want the bright start, the cleanly, you know, the, the exciting start, and then a broad finish from the Semillon. So Andy then said, okay, we're going to barrel ferment this wine to give it the, you know, a better uh, texture, richer yes. texture, a little more concentration. And you barrel and ferment both grape varieties blended together? No. Everything separately. is kept separate. Okay. Three different clones of Sauvignon Blanc, and there are actually two clones of, of Semillon. And uh, and then we use about a third new oak. So it's a blend of new oak, second use oak, and to stainless steel barrels. Ooh. So the ultimate have, recipe. So then, yeah. So then we go to blend in, say, March or and April. Afterwards, it was with fourteen components spread out. Okay, there we are. And at the beginning, we would put some aside, and I think we rejected about forty percent of it and created the first white keys. Huh. And it's evolved since then. And now we don't reject very much because we've focused in on what creates this um, very cool style. So, what music with this wine? Well, we talked about Mendelssohn, but the, the music that's on the yeah. label is the Arietta. All right, so we back up to the creation or the 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 uh, discovery of yeah. the name mm-hmm. of the brand. And naming a brand, as you know, is not easy because yeah. you think of all these great names and, oh, darn, it's taken already. So uh, we struggled for a year. And finally, uh, Karen said, uh, when we had to come up with a name to bottle our first wine in 96, Look at your music books, you guys. You're crazy about classical music. I said, well, I've already done it once. It looked in your music books. So once again, you know, coming up to the Cones guys, we're living in New York at that point, coming out here every six weeks, checking on things. And uh, so at the, at the top of the stack of music in the car driving up was Beethoven Sonata's Urtex Volume 2. Mm. Uh, so I just said, okay. So I just threw it open, and it fell open to the Arietta movement of the last Beethoven piano sonata. Meant to have. I looked down, and I was uh, I couldn't believe it. I, mean, I got goosebumps. This has got to be it. It's a famous moment in yeah. uh, classical music, especially in the piano repertoire. It's the end of Beethoven's, uh, <clears throat> near the end of his career. He's been deaf for a long time. He's basically inventing romantic music in his head. Yeah. He's that he cannot even hear. Oh, he can hear it well in his head. In his head. But, but he's deaf at the time. Correct. Right? So he could never actually physically hear it. Yeah. And, uh, and it was, of course, it was radical at the time. Musicians would say, this is unplayable. I mean, this yeah. is kind of strange. And now, of course, as time has evolved, it's canonical. It sounds 
fabulous to us. But what's most remarkable about this particular movement, the second and last movement of the last, the 32nd piano sonata, is its structure. It starts with an arietta, and Beethoven so indicated, and that's why, so we took the score, uh, the manuscript, a fragment of it from, um, it's uh, the originals in the, uh, the Berlin, in Germany, in the yeah. Berlin Library. And Beto indicates Arietta, so we high, highlighted that in, in gold. And then the uh, tempo indication, Adagio molto semplice e cantabile. So very slowly, simply, and songfully. And then these are the first two bars of Beethoven's chicken track-like handwriting. And, and he was really passionate. He just cross-outs and scratches or ripping paper. He was the opposite of Mozart who was the one graph wonder, I mean. Yeah. Uh, so he's very passionate in his writing. So if you get us to a piano, some can figure out what it is. Looking Do you at. want to give us an idea of the sound with your beautiful voice? What, the arietta? Yes. So arietta means I know little you. aria. So yeah. a song. It starts with a song, which goes up. La, 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 la. La 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 So that's the opening. Very simply and songfully. But then that little aria expands into four variations of increasing layering, complexity, harmonic explosion, tension, and finally reaches a state where it's divided, subdivided so much that it goes into sort of this quiver or a trills that last interminably and very difficult to play. But it takes you to a a sort of a stasis, which you think of Philip Glass or modern composers bringing you to a point where you're just hovering in in, in the air. You're in a state of nirvana or exaltation. Mm Mm-hmm. So the movement takes you from something simple and natural, a grape, yes. you know. As the uh, wine does. Through, a, uh, as the experience of tasting wine does, through experiencing um, uh, layers, complexity, counterpoint, balance, harmony, tension, all those things, which is the interrelation yes. of uh, wine and music, to a state of exaltation. Yes. Which is where wine, great wine, And where this wine takes us, exaltation. I love that term. And you've succeeded to make it in the bottle and on the label. What a beautiful voice. Well. When are you performing at the Lincoln Theater? No, 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 no. no. (laughs) I'll stick to the keyboard. (laughs) I doubt that. That was pretty good, don't you think? Well, let's finish this glass. I know you can. Oh, yeah. This makes me think of the best ever Bordeaux. With the Loire Valley as well. I love those two regions. And I gotta say, dear friends, you must have this wine in your cellar. This is outstanding. So now you need to tell us how you came up with this beautiful package. I'm gonna back up for one second. Yeah. On the white keys. Yes. You know, we pull this idea of the Arietta and the music into the wine. So <clears throat> when we can. So on the white keys, yes. I was trying to sing in C major. But anyway, the, on the name comes from the fact that the melody of the Arietta for the first 32 bars, or three minutes in real time, is played entirely on the white keys of the piano. Wow. So it's a silly little musical factoid 
But it's a way to link That's it. the wine to the, the area. I think it's brilliant. Such a great meaning to it. So quartet, all right. Yeah, well, I'll let you finish this little glass. I know you can, you've done that a few times. What a great voice, dear friends. Isn't it a fun story between the foundation of a winery that you kind of did by accident through friendship mm -hmm. and became a great business? Mm -hmm. Do you think it was meant to happen? I think it was. You know, as I said, I, that's, what's happened to me is not a result of planning. It's a result of following a passion. But sometimes, isn't it the way the best thing happens is follow your passion? Well, yes. And, and I think it keeps you happy. Yeah. Because you're doing what you enjoy. And I know I've sold wine on and off since I was 19 years old. And I'll do it till I'm 90 easily. I mean, why would I ever stop? Just sharing wine and, and uh, getting people, you know, excited about it. And to enjoy it is such a great joy. Yeah. So the combination of wine, art, auctioning, and music. What a, what a combination, following your passion. That's what it's all about. I agree with you. And the three girls in my life. Well, of course. So let's talk about them because I know one of them is highly responsible for this. Cheers. As my ladies just passed eight years old, I believe yours was doing something great at eight years old. Well, uh, right? Interestingly, yes, um, uh, it was a, a very interesting moment when we created this uh, Bordeaux blend, which he had, we had already called Quartet. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> my wife, Karen, uh, said, you know, we really should have a different label for this wine to differentiate it. We set the price so it can be out on restaurant tabletops without being yeah. too expensive. And we want to attract younger drinkers to I mean, our initial, most of our clients were collectors for mm -hmm. Arietta and we wanted to bring on, you know, the next generation. So there are a lot of reasons that she gave to uh, create a new label for it. And of course, me being very traditionalist, kind of, you know, stuck in my ways. No, 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 no. We don't need a new label. We have a new name. We'll use the old, no, no, no. So back and forth, eight months of this, Carrying family out. discussions. Family discussions, yes. Around the table. So who appears yes. at the counter in the kitchen but Libby Hatton, age eight. And she is tired of her That's parents amazing. arguing about whether to have a different label for this wine. So she says, well, let me design you a label. Eight so years old said, in France. Well, okay. So she trotted off to the computer, looked up the shape of the string quartet instruments, and set about making a design concept for the label. I love it. An hour later, she came back with a felt, ink felt tip pen drawing of her concept. And I was so shocked that I had to say, I couldn't just say yes. <laughs> so <laughs> Typical father. Yes, I Not said, really oh, yet. Right. Well, let's give this to our label designer and ask him to include it with his own concepts for the label, and then we'll see what works seems to so work So you best. played so hard the day one. I don't know. They still, you see the uh, stuff, I people still get, auctioneer. I still get a lot of grief <laughs> over that, quite rightly. And so I brought, because this hangs in the office, uh, the... Um, we are gonna see it. The original, the original, friends. and what resulted. So, there, whoopsie, let me get it right. <laughs> There, the top is what she presented us with after an hour. And what 
was so stunning to me is the whole concept of fours. That's right. The wine has four Bordeaux varietals in it, and that's the obvious, uh, you know, double entendre, if you will, Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, Merlot, Cabernet Franc, and Petit Verdot. So she came up, this whole thing is in fours. Uh, the, the numbers fours, the underlining of the quartet, the lines to the string quartet instrument, the four strings yeah. uh, on the viol- on the string instruments, the 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 stops here, the uh, uh, keys, uh, four of them on each instrument, four, four, four. And then, as only a child or a folk artist would do, she writes the names That's of the brilliant. instruments underneath. Uh, so there it went. It went off to the designer. Uh, my artist brother cleaned it up a little bit. And then we submitted the seven label design concepts to an informal committee by email, including <laughs> you really Paul kidding? Roberts, the yeah. line director of the French Laundry at the time. And I of remember course. Michael Polensky was on it, Ursula Hermosinski, and I can't remember who else. But after two rounds, they, they chose this. Oh, wow. And so that Which was is really the original label. For the original design. Quartet. Really. It's slightly modified now, but the, uh, the, the logo is as... Was drawn by her That's brilliant. It's a true family enterprise. Absolutely. A so, true family commitment. I love it. So anyway, it's, it, it is a family brand. And so there are a lot of family things that uh, that make it special. Wonderful. And, and tell us about this wine, because another phenomenal accomplishment here between the Sauvignon and the Quartet. And I know it's not necessarily your most high-end in terms of price points, but this is incredible. That's the one we find in restaurants. Well, most often it's about the 40% of our production and we just mm-hmm. keep the price at an attractive. I mean, obviously these are, our grape sources are first class and the grapes are quite expensive as you can imagine. But we elect to because we keep Ariana Lean, Karen and me and no payroll. That's great. And at 3,000 or more cases, uh, we can do that. And we keep the new oak a mm-hmm. little bit lower in this because we know it's going to be served. So it's about one third new oak. Restaurants can't afford to hold on to wine mm-hmm. these days. Uh, and it's really become a great uh, sort of door opener uh, for Arietta. So we're expanding the production gradually. The uh, grapes now come from Coombsville, mm-hmm. our two Cabernet sources. And then Lee Hudson supplies the rest. Great. Lee, of course, our primary grower and are, you know, we're very, very close to For sure. Lee Hudson. So the Merlot and the Franc are all from Hudson. And then we kind of take a little bit of Petit Verdot from one of Andy's other clients. Yeah. A little dabble do you. Which right. makes a big difference. I mean, I'm a big fan of Petit Verdot, very sensitive to it. And you feel it and adds that je ne sais quoi to the herbal quartet. Absolutely. In fact, our assistant winemaker, Patrick, was just, that's why I was late. Yeah. <laughs> He's in the office. Try this. This is what we're going to, uh, a little petite Verdot. It's going mm-hmm. into the 19 quartet before we put it in there. So literally, he put, so petite, I would taste the petite Verdot. It's really good. It's a great, great source. Yeah. In Oakville, actually. Yeah. And so then we emptied our glasses and just kind of left the rinse of the petite Verdot and put the rest of the quartet on top of it. And you could notice the difference. Right. With 1% or 2% petite that's, Verdot. It's, that's how subtle. And subtle, the wine world is about, you know, half a percent, one percent makes a huge difference. So now we go back to Christie's. You said you're going to go back to that time. How exciting has it been? And where do you see 
this amazing auction world going as far as wine is concerned? Well, uh, of course, Christie's was uh, my employer on and off for 22 years, sometimes off, most of it on. Uh, and then through 02, the last part when I went back, it was a joint venture between Christie's and Zaki's. Yes. And that split in 02, and I went with Zaki's. So I've actually been the auctioneer for Zaki's Wine since then. And Zaki's has launched a tremendously successful program. We basically created the idea of auctioning at tables where people would eat and drink yes. uh, and have fun. Very cool. Auction, which is what almost everyone uh, does now. So, uh, but when I came to, how I came to Christie's is a little story in and of itself, because I never thought I'd be in the yeah. auction business. But as it happens, in back in those days, I went to management school. I never really, I thought, having given up the idea of being a professional performer, that I wanted to be uh, in performing arts management because I liked the world. And I For sure. got along with musicians and I knew a lot about particularly classical music and I thought at that point my dream job would be to uh, uh, serve as general uh, general manager of the Metropolitan Opera or something like that. So I was interviewing in New York. So you were really casual music. I thought. Or maybe communications, uh, mm -hmm. the TV world, but related to culture. Yeah. Uh, but what do I do when I'm kind of casting about is I work in a wine store to feed the habit. Yeah. And while I was doing that and interviewing... To feed the habit. <laughs> well, support the love, shall we say, or he's great. <laughs> Develop the passion is a better way to express that. Uh, a friend of mine called and said, you know, uh, my protege over at Christie's in the wine department got his job in the mailroom at, uh, uh, what's the great art agency? Uh, the uh, rep agency, I'll think of it. Uh, and so they need someone to replace him to be the cataloger in the wine warehouseman for or warehouse person at Christie's who are trying to do their first wine auction in the U.S. Said, yes, that sounds fabulous. I don't care about it. I'm just going to go over there. I want to work with great old bottles of wine. That's it. I'd already been involved. So you, when you want someone, you just go for it. Irrelevant of the pay, irrelevant of anything. You well, I didn't go. tell them that I had a new management degree. I just uh -huh. wanted to get in there. And, and do that. It's a great advice for all of us who look for a path, you know, just to go. Absolutely for it. right. Just do it. Don't be too proud about your actual job. Just get in there and do something. Good advice, dear friends. Prove yourself uh, and you'll go from there. If you know that it's on the road to yes. what you want to do. So here, 10 bucks an hour. <laughs> doesn't you know, matter you get to learn meanwhile you know my classmates or managers were going to work for Goldman Sachs yeah. and other things. But the typical is, thing this is what I so I didn't even tell them that I had a management degree I showed up uh, and literally was working in a 50 degree uh, temperature control warehouse in lower were you end, already wearing the, the lower east, sexy boat apps, I don't think I own one at that point I had to borrow a sport coat to go to the interview. And it was the turtleneck, which well, lasted about reasons. 30 seconds. They said, oh, okay, fine. Here you go. So in I went to help organize yeah. the first wine auction. And Michael Broadbent had decided that we, Christie should really try to do wine auctions in the U.S. Because in spite of all the restrictions, all the wine that was flowing from the U.S. because it couldn't be sold yeah. at auction, it was going to London and then American buyers were buying it, and it was just being shipped back. Said, That's so ridiculous. why not just staying there? Well, all of the legal uh, yeah. hurdles. Uh, and so we uh, got into difficulty because 
the state liquor authority in New York said, oh yeah, we'll grant you a special license. And then the wholesalers piled in and went to a judge and said, no, 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 no special licenses. That's not fair. And got an injunction to prevent it. Uh-huh. So we moved it to Chicago. I was literally at my desk, Christie's East, I pick up the phone, it's the president of Marshall Fields. And so here I am, this, you know, just wine longer. Yes, sir. Uh, well, we'd like to invite you to conduct your auction under our licensing umbrella in Chicago. Well, that sounds like a great idea. Let me speak to the powers that be. So soon enough, we had decided to transfer the auction to Chicago. We did it at Marshall Fields, and I stayed on until that first auction took place in April of 1981. Wow. But during that period, someone let it be known that there was a new person with a master's in management down in the bowels of the wine department, and they needed management help because the art market market was exploding. Yeah. And it was, I think, it wasn't an obvious thing for MBA candidates to go to work for an art auction house. You were the obvious one. Well, uh, so... From the warehouse to the top floor. So they said, uh, come on, get over here. We want to interview you and give you a real job. <laughs> wow. So over I went, and they offered me the job of office manager. And I said, well, this is not the performing arts business, but it certainly is a personality-driven business. I can see there are a lot of divas in the art auction business. Yeah. You know, these, these specialists, some of them were incredibly brilliant yeah. and very passionate about what they did. I said, okay, well... I'll you know, once again, I'll try it. This is kind of on the road to the environment that I see myself in. So three weeks after I came over, the gentleman I was brought over to work for just resigned. And the executive committee said, well, do you think you could do his job? And I said, really? Well, if you support me, I'll give it a go. Yeah. So in the space of three weeks, I went from wine warehouseman and cataloger to chief operating officer, well, essentially director of operations wow. of Christie's in North America by just dint of being in the right place at the right time. Do you, do you believe it was meant to be? Well, I don't know. I can't happen. <laughs> what can I say? But that's amazing that you, you seize the opportunity, though. You just said, yes, I'm going to give it a shot. Yeah. And I'm going to give it a try. And I'm going to, you know, to all of us, it's a great inspiration. Well, you know, it was a little, uh, it's daunting, a little bit scary scary. because I was 27 years old and I really had no large organization experience. And I was kind of the young guy in the executive committee and I was supported by, you know, a wonderful team of experts and other top administrators and got involved in the environment. It was, it was so interesting then because Christie's at that point was private of course it still is private but the the board um every member of the international board was british and they all went to eaton mm, of course and so it, i would go be invited over to some you know meetings in london periodically and i could barely understand what they were saying well, no, it was it was marvelous, but it was, it was a different way of communicating. I really think someone should do something about this. And those who went to eat knew what to do. Yeah, <laughs> when they heard that, very it, secret it was society. A, a different, well, it was a different, you know, style. And of course, Christie's is very international. It's about it's evolved. Yeah. It's owned by a 
very well. Francois Pinot. Of course. French owned now. Many, yeah, we believe. Yes, French owned. That's right. So, um, but it was a very interesting time because when I came on, yeah. sales were 100 million in the U.S. And when I left to go to Japan and oversee offices in the Far East, the sales were a billion. So it was a wild uh, time a in the art market, a great expansion. And uh, it was a very exciting time. And what's your view today of the world of auctioning and how it's evolving and taking a new dimension with the internet and, and all the tools that we have and, and, and the size of the auction market at large, not just for wine, but art and all of it. Well, it's obviously continues to grow pretty dramatically. Yeah. Part of it is the tremendous amount of cash that's sitting out there in, in people's wealthy people's yeah. hands. Um, so, I mean, for wine, I mean, if, you know, well, most of it, so many clients who could buy an entire wine auction. Yes. The whole auction and not blink. That's it. But when you think of the size of a wine auction, $5 million, a big wine auction, maybe $10 million, that's a minor impressionist painting. Yes. You know, a major impressionist painting is $100 million. Now, to give you an idea of the of, of the scale of it, but the, the buyers who are... Uh, paying those prices are worth, you know, billions of dollars, 10, yeah. 20 billion dollars. So the scale of it is is really kind of daunting. It almost seems unfathomable to me. Uh, in particular, the wines that I was just working in a cellar yes. yesterday of an estate, the last wines that we were going to sell at, at, at Zaki's, and uh, they conducted a sale in uh, 1997. Which was three and a half million dollars then. If that sale happened now, it would be thirty million dollars worth of wine, the same wine. So in art, similarly, and you look at contemporary art. Yes. You know, the brand artists. Okay, wow, wow, that's incredible. They get hot, and they're selling for ten, twenty, thirty million dollars. Jeff Koons, a hundred million dollars. You've got to be kidding me. Yeah. But I think you know a lot of the debate is okay. How much of this will work online and? You know, do we need to bring people back into the room? Certainly in wine. Yeah. And I think people will want to return to the room somewhat. Somewhat. Because the social, certainly with wine, <clears throat> the social aspect is so important of sharing mm -hmm. wine. I mean, you don't share a painting quite the same way as you share a bottle of wine, which is a perishable. It's it's a moment that you want to do yeah. typically together. And you want to share. One other person. But maybe a group. Yeah. And so I think uh for instance, Zaki's will start maybe in the fall doing some auctions where we have a room again. But so much of the bidding will be online. Yeah. Uh and it's so international now. It's uh we have groups and the organization is so international too. We have yeah. a team in Beijing, uh mainland China, Hong Kong, uh West Coast, East Coast, uh all over Europe. Yeah. And there are bidding parties that take place in yeah. all these locations and to be able to bring everyone together at that moment they're not going to fly from Beijing to New York no. to be there but some people will and there's so many other ways to do it that is still very cool as you said the parties where, where do you think wine auctions are going well I think they're going <clears throat> to the commercial auctions I mean there's and the charity yes. auctions are somewhat different dynamics I think the uh, commercial auctions can be conducted mostly online. Yes. Uh, but I think charity auctions uh, need to, uh, to produce the best result, need to be social events. Mm -hmm. And so you do have to get people 
back together. Sure, you can do some online. You could yes. do people are doing hybrid events, but the emulation, the excitement, you know, we could have a whole group of people on, on camera all, uh, online uh, and we could be taking bids here, mm -hmm. but uh, we could be taking bids from Jen and <laughs> Dylan. <laughs> Dylan, right? Dylan is a big bid. Right. Specifically, if Jen is in the room. <laughs> He wants to impress her. Bit, you know. So I don't know. I you know, but you might say, uh, well, I'm old school and uh, love the idea of sharing yeah. the excitement of being together in in person. But I think that <clears throat> charities are yeah. finding that to get the top dollar mm -hmm. for their main events, they probably will want to get people back together back to, yeah. in one one space mm -hmm. um, for. The most important events. I see. And well, let's finish this wine. I have one more for you to try. Oh, okay. Dear friends, a few more minutes together. But I just want you to present as well the other two fantastic wines of Arietta because we drink in the quartet, but there's the Hudson block, the H block, and then the top of the top. It is. That he has not opened for me because he's saving this bottle for a special dinner that we're going to have. <laughs> All right. Um, so we talked about this wine. Remember the stitch yep, that morning sure. and taking the grapes. Uh, that's and this one. And this one. So that's H Block, which is Cabernet Franc with Merlot. Mm -hmm. The original first made in 1996. Yeah. Uh, which I'm a huge fan of. I love this wine and I love Cap Franc. Right. So this is probably one of my favorite Great variety. And if style. we line up our wines, and uh, the tasters have experience with Bordeaux, or drink a lot of it, they tend to gravitate towards this. It just has that kind For of sure. old world feel. I think it's that uh, right bank style blend yes. that does it, the sense of sophistication For and sure. take me back to the, the old country. Yes. <laughs> so this wine is very is really kind of a um, unicorn wine. It's hardly known. It's hardly even... On the site, we make so little of it, but uh -huh. recently, uh, Andy, our winemaker, we decided to take the t his favorite two or three barrels of Cabernet from our best block in Coombsville yep. uh, and uh, put it aside, all new oak, and give it about an extra eight months of aging and babying. Very cool. And then bottle it in, in this... What we have in this package essentially love the package. So this is old silk engraved and yes, and then gold painted. And we of course wanted to come up with a musical name for it, which implies something about the wine. So in this case, uh, you know, the piano, of course, a very important part of the, our musical background. We decided to call it eighty-eight keys. Mm. So there are eighty-eight keys of the piano, and the yeah. idea is a wine of this grandeur. Uh, deserves the you, whole thing. The whole keyboard. You have to play all White 88 keys, whites and blacks, to uh, express the breadth of yeah. of this wine. Wow. Which is the grandest wine we make, but we only make... You we'll know, send you all a picture when we open 50 it. 50 or 70 cases. I want you to try something from Napa Valley that is the icon of American history, the Zinfandel. So I know you could take that in. But I have... As we try this wine, tell us about the foundation, Gagorski, that you are, and my pronunciation of Polish or Russian is not always as good. Gagorski? Yes. Tell us about that. Well, it's an example of what we do sometimes to blend the experience of, of music and wine. Piatagorski Foundation, uh, named after Gregor Piatagorski, one yeah. of the world's greatest chalice of all time. It really was 
best known in the 30s and 40s, mm-hmm. played with uh, Yasha Heifetz and Arthur Rubinstein in a trio and a lot of... Anyway, he was a tremendous fellow. And his grandson, in his honor, started a foundation to take classical music performances into schools and into rural areas where the kids would never otherwise or might not experience it. So uh, what we're going to do is a tasting of Arietta wines and talk about the relationship of the wine to music. In this case, it will be classical music, although Arietta can... Arietta means a little song. It doesn't have to That's be right. classical necessarily. And then um, the Piatigorsky Foundation will supply several of their musicians. So they'll do a little performance on Zoom. And then we will interleave tastings of the Arietta wines. Very cool. So the Piatigorsky Foundation the supporters will be online. We're going to send out a note to some of our Arietta supporters if they'd like to join us. Yeah. For an hour of combining little brief musical performances by young professionals and a tasting of the Arietta wines. Love so it. it's when is that happening? It's May 22nd, uh, 5 p.m. So a month away, Pacific dear friends. If you 8, want to join. 8 p.m. And yeah, if you're interested, we will set you up with the uh, the link. Absolutely. We'll put the link in the chat as we speak. And I, Jen is working on it. As we speak. So, so Zinfandel. Ooh la la. A primitive wine. Exactly. What do you think of this? We wanted, besides the Arietta, a great variety you're not producing necessarily. That is for all of us something we love in Sonoma, in the Dry Creek and the Russian River, school climate, but as well a great exclusive of Raymond in the heart of Well, tell me where are you getting the grapes for your... Right here. On really? this phenomenal Sonoma United States. Well, you know, before Cabernet ever existed in the valley, there were the Primitivo. Yes. And the other, of course, Italian varieties brought by immigrants. Yes. Primitivo, originally from, I think, Yugoslavia and then planted in uh, Italy. And it took a while, I think, for the geneticists to determine uh, that this Zinfandel actually is the Primitivo. That's uh, right. Great. So it's... We're, you know, this is one of the great originals. Now, when, I, story. when I moved to California, I drank quite a bit of Zinfandel when I was hanging out over in the Sonoma side uh-huh. because so much of it is made. There's some still here in in the Napa Valley, but particularly in That's Dry right. Creek. For sure. And whatnot. So this is terrific to have. Out. Well, we, we do very much a tiny amount. I believe... You know, 224 cases. So it's tiny, tiny. That's an Arietta amount. That's an Arietta. For the, for, for the JCB empire that you would well, trouble yourself. Very such small. A tiny we love it. We love it. Small is beautiful. <laughs> That's right. And Fritz, what, what is the next thing? You've done so many exciting things. Give us a little insight of what is one of your dreams. Besides having your daughter continue her amazing educational career and becoming on your side to take over Arietta, what else is there? Well, I think now that I probably won't travel 200,000 miles a year, yeah. maybe just 100,000 miles. Yes. Karen and I are going to work on Arietta doing events and expanding this idea of music and wine together. Yes. I don't know that we'll produce that much more wine because we like the individual nature of it. I mean, the more you produce quantity of any one wine, yeah. the more kind of homogenous it right. gets. And if we keep these 
Now, wines uh, relatively small and very site-specific. We can keep the personalities very distinct. But this year, we're celebrating Arietta's 25th harvest. Oof. So we're going to have a little party. Quarter of a century. <laughs> with music, of course. Yes. And Will we'll you play? The, well. <laughs> How are you going to perform? Karen has insisted that I try finally to play Beethoven Opus 111 oh, the Arietta Sonata, which is it. very difficult. Well, I know you played she's fabulously, put, she, of course. She's putting me to the, to the test. And she so, plays herself. Well, she sings a little bit. Yeah. She doesn't play the piano, but she will chime in, especially when our daughters start to sing. Which is amazing. That's going so, to be a true family affair. Oh, absolutely. So Libby turns 21 in July, mm, and she wow. can then officially serve Arietta to friends. Um, <clears throat> no, so that she, she hasn't. Maybe inside of the cello or inside of well, the Well, in the home. Where yes. it's, it's permitted in the home. <laughs> but the, the kids, well, Hattie at 16, yeah. champagne is her For star. sure. So that's one of the plans. So making Arietta a little, you know, more present all over and Better you're spending more time. Yes, right? on, on Arietta and... Uh, and making that we've been kind of an insider brand. We are an insider brand. Yeah, we have very fervent loyalists who followed us, who buy it year in and year out. We sell largely to a mailing list, but we are at the Oakville Grocery. We have of course wonderful retail supporters. So local people, historical people coming supporters. up. If you're riding in your bicycle or whatever, I don't know if you want to. Drink and we serve it a lot at the Oakville Wine Merchant right. in the beautiful. By the ounce, so you could have an ounce or two or or five of Arietta Quartet or the Block H, and uh, you can enjoy it, which is really a lot of fun for people to discover, right? As well, yeah, yeah, terrific. So now, last question: What a fun time with Fritz! Ooh la la! I've never been on this side of the wine interviewing the iconic, powerful, and great personality. You feel his magnetism, his energies. Incredible. Well, now, Jean-Charles, you are no <laughs> shy flower <laughs> in your own Well, regard. I, could be, I could be intimidated sometimes. Ladies and gentlemen, je vous présente Jean-Charles Boisset, le petit barnum of the wine industry here in Napa. Ooh la la! <laughs> so now, Fritz, what's your big message to everybody out there because you know we've lived a unique time you've had an amazing experience of following your passion i mean you're a prime example of an amazing artist because fritz is an incredible artist pianist and singer and an amazing performer on stage you've seen him raising the biggest amount of money for napa valley and many auctions around the world and in the u.s and what advice, message, after what we've lived, you want to send to everybody? Because you're really an example to follow, and I'm so thrilled that we're able to spend that time together, and hopefully we'll do another time. Well, I think we've really circled around it throughout our hour together, and that's follow your passion. Yes. Follow your passion. It's not so about So tell taking, it to our friends so they not can about, follow their passion. It's not about how much is in the bank. That's it. Say. Isn't it irrational? Or irrelevant at the end of the day. If you can find something that you like to do that will carry you forward, I mean, why even think about... You won't need to consider what retirement is. Yes. There will be no retirement. You will continue to do what you love. That's it. As long as you physically can. I love that. Do you want to finish with a little note? 
Maybe, oh, or maybe an auction note. <laughs> okay, Jean-Charles at $100,000, $110,000, $120,000, $130,000, $140,000, $140,000, $150,000, $160,000. We'll stop there, $150,000 enough. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Fritz Hatton himself. Thank you, Fritz. Oh, thank you, Jean-Charles. A lot of fun. A lot, a lot of, fun. of fun. As always. That's what it's all about.